I'm Dave Potts in the Asher Strategy Studio in Washington, D.C. Our host today is John Asher, CEO and founder of Asher Strategies. John's guest is Jason Cutter, sales success architect and keynote speaker in Fort Myers, Florida. Jason is the CEO and founder of Cutter Consulting Group and the author of the book with the same name as the title of this episode, Selling with Authentic Persuasion. Over to you, John. Well, Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've got a little place in Bradenton, kind of right up the coast from you. Yeah, not too far. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. I'm excited to chat about sales, authenticity, or where, wherever this goes. All right, terrific. So I, I like the name of your book. It's certainly a different um, name. And so what's, what's behind? How did you come up with the name? It was actually a long journey. And, and what's fascinating is I wrote the book. The book was in the final editing phases and I still literally had no title. What I had was the framework that I had used in my own selling and then helped hundreds of people in their selling when I was managing companies, leading call centers, sales teams, mostly telephone sales. And I wrote the book, which was the, you know, the culmination of my career to that point. And it was interesting because I didn't have a title for it for a while. And then I finally just sat down and said, I need to come up with a title and inspiration hit. And I was writing out words and uh, then authentic persuasion was born. Those, those two words encapsulated both important parts of what I think makes for a successful sales professional. All right, great. You know, I remember when I wrote my second book, the, uh, we, we had it as the, kind of the title of our training course, Top 10 Skills of the Elite Salespeople. The publisher took it to one of the, I think it was Ingram, where they had 40 salespeople and proposed it to them. And they came up with a much better title, Closed Deals Faster. And that nice. became the name of the book. So <laughs> there you go. So my, my name was pretty, pretty uh, mundane and, and lousy, according to them. So <laughs> that's how I got the name of my second book. <laughs> so, it, the, you know, the uh, name of your book, the first thing that can come to mind for people is, okay, well, what's on, what's an inauthentic, right, conversation? So what, what do you mean by that name, authentic? I mean, I know what authentic means, and, sure. and I know what persuasion means, but what, what does it really mean, the two together? Yeah, so, and that's a great question. And, and there's a lot of people I've talked to who we can debate some terminology, right? Like some people dislike sure. authentic. It's so overused in the media and it's the word of the, the day where you should be authentic and companies should be authentic. Um, some people prefer transparent, you know, something along those lines. But in the framework of authentic persuasion, the authentic part refers to the salesperson. The persuasion part refers to the act of what they should be doing, which is persuading the right people to move forward. On the authentic side, a lot of it has to come down to where people who get into sales or fall into sales like I did without that being a career path, think that to be an effective salesperson, they have to act a certain way, do a certain thing, say certain things, and essentially copy either what they've seen in the world or what they've seen in movies that are generally terrible movies to try to copy. <laughs> and so what happens is they think that's what it takes to sell. And what I found is that's very, very much not true. And the more you try to be a certain thing in any 
career that you're doing, especially in sales, people detect it. It's hard to act and pretend and, and fake something long-term as a successful career, short-term. Yes. No long-term. No. And so a lot of people think I have to be over overly charismatic. I have to be a storyteller. I have to be an extrovert. I have to be schmoozy and I have to like do all of these things to be effective. And you know, the, the basis of it is that the more you can be who you are and rely on your strengths while understanding why you're in sales and the value you bring and why you want to sell what you're selling and help the people that you help, that will go much further than pretending to be something else. No, I totally agree. And, you know, those of us humans who've been around for a while can pretty much sniff out who's authentic and who isn't pretty quickly, I would say. <laughs> Yeah. And that's the fundamental thing, right? Is that when we all think about ourselves as consumers, we know what that experience is like. And we know when it just feels, and this is the, the word I've been using for the last year. We know when it feels gross, um, right. when it's just like, oh, that's not, even if I end up buying, I still don't enjoy that. And I'm not going to do that again from that person or that company. But unfortunately, people fall in sales and they think, okay, but that's what it takes. Or they think that's what it takes to be successful. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm probably going to fail versus them being themselves in a way that's effective. Yeah, one of the things we've always taught is there's three things that are helpful if you're a salesperson and people can kind of get it pretty quickly. And that is showing gratitude. You know, thank you for coming on the meeting with me. And showing empathy, being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes, and as you say, authenticity. And so we can we can sniff it out pretty early when somebody's inauthentic or trying to be somebody they're not. <clears throat> so that's good. I like I like that word a lot, authentic. And now let's go to persuasion. So how do you persuade somebody? Well, and this is where again it gets into dialogue and, and word choice, you know, it's very clear when we look at the opposite or another word that people associate with sales, which is manipulation, right? And manipulation, when you look at the definition is purely about I'm doing something to something else and it's for my benefit. And I don't necessarily care what happens to it, right? Like I'm manipulating clay into a vase. I don't really care what the clay thinks. Here's what I'm going to do <laughs> in sales. That's I'm going to manipulate you. If you benefit from this or not, that's not my concern. My concern is me winning. And so then persuasion is a little more vague in the definition. I use positive persuasion, which is I want to persuade you in some positive outcome for your benefit. And really that's important because when we talk about sales, it should always be predicated on if somebody is a good fit, if they qualify for what it is that you're selling, right? They have problem X, I have solution X. They have goal Y, I have solution Y. And then from there, the persuading part happens. The act of persuading and the reason why I put that in there and you know, you mentioned the title of the book, I think it's important, you know, and I love the subtitle and some people like it even more. The subtitle of the book is to transform from order taker to quota breaker. And what happens is a lot of people like myself fall into sales, end up being order takers again, because they think selling takes manipulation. And so they're not persuading. So they're not an active participant when it comes to the conversation. They're nice. They follow Bob Berg's advice, right? They get people to know, like, and trust them. And they hope that that's going to do enough of the selling and that's going to convince people. And it doesn't because that's part of the formula, but not all of it. Persuasion for someone else's benefit to help them get to a better place is really about getting them unstuck. Because fundamentally, if somebody 
has not yet bought from your company, which means they didn't go online or they didn't call up and say, here's my money, please take it and sign me up. I don't need your help. Then that means they're in their comfort zone. They're unsure. They're worried about what is the right outcome and they're looking for wisdom. And as a sales professional using authentic persuasion, you're persuading them out of their comfort zone while still making them feel safe. Yeah, I like that. And um, to give an example, there's a, uh, we, we teach a number of cognitive biases and one of them is called a rhyming bias. And that is we humans remember things that rhyme more than things that don't rhyme. So that's why your subtitle sounds so good to me, right? It's a rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> so people will remember it a lot better. And, and you're totally right. Nobody wants to be manipulated. And those of us who've been in sales for a long time, like Dave and I and you, recognize that um, using biases and old brain activators to wake up the buyer's decision-making brain is really about positively influencing them, right? Not about negatively yeah. influencing them by manipulating so exactly. that's good. So now I, I get the whole deal behind your book. I like it. Excellent. And so how did you first get into sales, Jason? You kind of intimated that you kind of <laughs> fell into it. <laughs> uh, I went the way that most salespeople turned consultant, author, podcast host, professional speaker. Uh, most of us go. I uh, got a bachelor's degree in marine biology and I tagged sharks for years in and around Santa Cruz. And funny enough, uh, that didn't work out. Uh, most not because, of, you know, I still have all my fingers and toes. So that part was okay. <laughs> um, but in, in that field, you have to do a lot more schooling to get a job. And I realized that job was going to be mostly like research. And I wasn't really passionate about it. In fact, I couldn't even get an $8 an hour job scrubbing boats at the time. And I took that as a sign of maybe I should do something else. Prior to marine biology and going on in that focus, I was a late blooming only child and, you know, didn't fit in, uh, awkward, shy. And so um, I chose sharks instead of people. But then I realized as I got older that I was okay with people and, and I did well with people and I could help them. Worked at Microsoft doing tech support. I thought I wanted to be in computers. That ended. And then uh, I had an opportunity to go into the mortgage business, which in 2002 was the height of the real estate boom, especially in Seattle, Washington. And it was pure order taking, uh, literally learned nothing about selling. I did learn how to screw up deals, but I didn't learn anything about actually selling. And um, yeah, and that kind of kicked it off where I equated sales. At that point, I equated sales with helping people. I didn't even see myself as a salesperson for probably another five years after that point. Interesting. So I have a similar background, actually. You're a, marine, you're a marine biologist. So I'm actually a physicist by education and an engineer by training, but I couldn't really do real work. I hated real work. I got lots of friends <laughs> here in DC will say, you know, if you can't get into real work, can't do real work, then get into sales. <laughs> <laughs> so I've essentially been a sales guy for, I don't know, 35 years, maybe. I love it. <laughs> So I like, I like that. Uh, I like your story and your background. So now that you're there and kind of on the top of the heap from a sales training standpoint, to what do you attribute your sales success? You know, how, how did you really learn sales as you, as you came, came up the line? You know, I, I think it's a culmination of factors. I think 
one of the things that played against me for a long time, but then ultimately helped me was the fact that not only did I have an awkward, shy kind of bullied childhood growing up, I am the product of two very analytical parents. My mom was a banker and moved up and around uh, in organizations before she retired. My dad was an engineer, uh, moved up to program director and, and manager and leader, uh, but in engineering. Uh, and my mom absolutely hated salespeople, especially from the banker side. And so I was raised to hate sales as well and see sales as really gross and dirty. So when I was in it, before I even realized I was doing sales, I didn't think of myself as sales. I just thought I was helping people and solving problems. And that part of my brain, which you know, led me into the marine biology and probably you into the physicist and the science and, and whatnot is that solving problems. When you see a situation, then you want to figure it out. And I learned to apply that to people and their situations and helping them out. Also, because I didn't have any traditional sales upbringing, even in all of my sales career at companies, I have received zero minutes of training where wow. somebody sat me down and said, here's how you overcome objections. Here's what you say. Here's how to close a deal. Here's how to use a script. Like, here's how to like read body language. Here's how to like receive zero. It's all self-taught. And so I think that was actually helpful because I got to see myself and what others did and learn it a way that worked for me, thus the book. And that's what I really help people with. It's not so much of like, here, you have to do these things. It's here's the, the principles that are successful for you. And I think that's really helped me be, it, it be universally applicable, right? Like I have clients right now that are in B2B software, retail furniture, business to consumer energy. You know, I've had clients all over the place with their sales teams and but, you know, at some basic level, the principles of sales that could help people are similar. John, John, excuse me. It's time for a quick commercial break. We've been speaking with Jason Cutter on selling with authentic persuasion. Now back to John and Jason. So, Jason, um, thank you for that insight. Now, just to pick it back up, you mentioned a number of different clients, B2C, B2B2. Um, to be when when you have an engagement what are you doing for the clients so it ranges all of it is focused on their sales operation kind of like david mentioned in the beginning you know the sales success architect focus that i have it's really about helping sales operations scale build systems and processes there's a lot of organizations and teams out there that i consider playing sales they look at sales, especially depending on where the founder or CEO is coming from in their perspective. They think if I hire some salespeople who know what they're doing and let them loose, they'll know what to do and they will make us money. And that usually leads to really high turnover challenges, maybe even bad sales because the salesperson's motivated on their own you know, motivations and compensation yeah. and not the big picture. So I do a lot of system building processes organizing leadership development. You know, a lot of people get promoted into leadership because they were good in sales, but not given any tools and leadership is a completely different skill. Uh, and then I spend a lot of time training salespeople and training leaders on the following through with the salespeople and helping them sell in a very effective way for them. So training, workshop, coaching, programs. Again, ultimately anything to help the salespeople sell more, better retention at the company and fundamentally just a better bottom line. So when you really look at a, um, 
an effective salesperson, <clears throat> they usually are pretty good at, you know, product knowledge, obviously, you have to know what you're talking about. They're pretty good at selling skills that they've learned or been taught by you or, you know, others. They're usually motivated. And they've usually, not always, but have a good sales manager who's helping them. And usually the company they're working for has good processes and gives them the right tools. And lastly, they have a, they have a nice talent for sales. They actually like sales. They like being in sales. Because what it takes to be successful in sales is that's part of their personality. It's what they love to do. So of all those various factors, which ones have you found that, that are, that are the, like the top of the heap for importance for salespeople? I, I think those are, are, I think that's a great list, uh, especially in the terms that you put it in. I mean, having the desire to, to sell and enjoying it, there's a lot of people who get into it and they just, no matter what, it's just, it's not the right fit for them, right? They just feel at odds. And sometimes that's training. Sometimes it's just mindset. They don't understand, again, that sales is service, not something you're doing to somebody, but it's something you're doing for and with them. And, and I think obviously, you know, you said some things in there that you and I both always wish were true, but it's not, which is, you know, a company that supports their salespeople and gives them the tools and the training and knows actually how to cultivate and nurture that. I think for me, the, the big traits that I put in the book, which I've seen are the fundamental kind of like overall ones, more on like the individual salesperson would be openness, curiosity, creativity, persistence, and authenticity. Those five in particular, and in that order, I have found lead to very successful salespeople. Even if someone has no sales experience in the past, if they're open and they're curious in that order, then they will take feedback, they'll want to learn, and then the rest of it will go from there. Same is true because all three of us know this and have seen it. If you've got a seasoned veteran who's been selling for a long time and they are not open, they will not do well at a new company because they will try to force their process onto a different company's sales model. And it just doesn't work unless they're selling literally the same exact thing. So just, just because it's five and people have a hard time remembering five, we can all remember three. Just repeat for the audience those, those five for you. Openness, curious. Yeah, so the five are openness, curiosity, creativity, persistence, and authenticity. And again, those top three are the most important, the openness, curiosity, and creativity, um, because that will lead to the other things. And most people think persistence and grit is number one for sales, but you can be persistently gritty in the wrong direction and not open to feedback and who knows what's going to happen. So by openness, you mean open to feedback or open to learning or op open? Yes, actually all of that. So open to feedback, <laughs> open to learning, open to when your manager says, hey, we've got a new script we're rolling out and we found this is really effective and we want you to try using this in your conversation. Somebody who says, okay, I trust you. You are in the business of making money. So if you say I should try this, I will try this. Got it. I like what you said about uh, mindset and problem solving. And that is, in my experience, <clears throat> when you... Um, when you look at the salespeople who are passive listeners, you know, instead of active and doing all the things that they should not be doing, <laughs> then and, and trying to close too soon and all those things, 
then the savvy buyers consider that those salespeople have, you know, commission breath, <laughs> <laughs> meaning that the buyer really knows the salesperson is just after um, a commission. On the other hand, when, when you have an active listener and they have this whole new mindset that you've already mentioned, and then their mindset is, I'm not a salesperson, I'm a problem solver. Yeah. And my metric is number of problems solved, not how many deals I've closed. Then the buyers can see that immediately, sense it, pretty much immediately. So yeah, I totally agree with your five. All good. Yeah, and I and I agree with that. I mean, that's that's the thing is that buyers can sense it. Now, here's the challenge: is that buyers sometimes will still buy even with that commission breath, even when they know the salesperson cares more about their own situation than the potential customer. Um, if there's a need and the customer knows they want it or needs it, they'll tolerate it and put up with it, which just you know, give some people the idea, oh, that does work. So I'll just keep doing it. And then what you hear on the flip side of that is it's sales is a numbers game, right? Which it is. It's always right. a numbers yeah. game. But what numbers are you watching? Is it a numbers game of I got to talk to 100 people to sell one? You might be doing something wrong. I got to talk to 100 people to sell 10, 15, 20. Well, that's, that's a different numbers game than the commission breath numbers game. Right. So speaking of that, there's a lot of metrics associated with salespeople. So if you if you take a, um, let's say you're going to start working for a company that's got, you know, 5, 10, 20 salespeople, B to, say B2B, and you ask the, the sales manager or the CEO, what, what, what's your main metric? What can I do with your sales force that would please you the most? What, what do you hear from those prospects? To them, what's the most important metric? You know, one of the biggest things I hear a lot, which is might be surprising depending on who's listening to this, is the consistency part. From a lot of owners and top level executives, when I'm chatting with them, they know they want to make more. They know they, they want more revenue. They want lower turnover. They want all of these things. But a lot of them say, I just, I want them to do it consistently, right? There's nothing harder from a business perspective. And then I will also argue from an individual salesperson's perspective than to close, depending on what you're doing, five deals this week and one deal next week, and then 10 deals and then zero and then eight and then two. Like that up and down is so mentally and financially painful and it's tough for a company. So a lot of what companies want before they even think about growing. Like, yes, we would love them to all do 10 deals a week, but for now, can you just get them to consistently do five and then we can build up from there? Yeah, you know, I had a, um, a great mentor way back when. He basically, he, I'll tell you his metric, not too far different from what you said, but it's certainly related. And then he says, when you take, and that is when you take an existing Salesforce, if you can cause their closing rate to increase from whatever it is, 33% to 50%, you know, whatever it is, mm -hmm. then not only do you have more revenue, but profitability goes sky high because you are increasing the sales you're getting without any increase in the so-called SG&A 
expenses because you're getting more productivity out of the current salespeople. So you don't have to have more office space or more admin costs or hire more salespeople and on and on. That's always kind of stuck with me as a real important metric. Yeah, and I think I, I think closing rate and closing percentage is important. I think one of the challenges that I have seen, though, on the flip side of that, is a lot of salespeople and sales managers who put everything on the closing percentage without even looking at other metrics as well, which I think you have to look holistically at a lot of those when you get into that level, because going from a 33 to a 40% closing rate is great, but how many of those deals stay? How many of those people retain long-term versus how many do they cancel? Because I've seen some salespeople close more deals today that then cancel tomorrow or return next week. So I think that retention is important. I think quality, what's being said, compliance uh, in the act of that sale. Um, and then it also depends too on what your marketing is like. I deal with a lot of organizations that have multiple lead sources. So the closing percentage on, let's say a direct <clears throat> mail phone call that is, you know, expensive uh, right. is different than a closing percentage on a Facebook ad call, but they have two different costs. So how do you tell, okay, I'm closing bad here, but I'm actually making the company more money. And so uh, like I developed a formula called the closing effectiveness score, which then balances a lot of those factors out to give you a number, a ranking number to then tell how the team or the individuals are doing. And so you call that the closing? Closing effectiveness, effectiveness score. score. Yeah. That sounds it. Sounds John. John, unfortunately, it's time for the wrap-up. Dave, uh, we were just getting started. <laughs> oh, come on, Dave. <laughs> well, I'd like to bend time, but I can't. <laughs> well, Jason, so great to have you on the show. Really enjoyed the uh, conversation. If there was a, a couple of ideas you could leave with our listeners that you think are the most important or would be the most impactful for them, Please let them know and also let, let, let people know how to get a hold of you if, they, if they'd like further information. Well, I think that the two biggest things I'm thinking about it to keep it simple is remember that sales is service. In my opinion, when it's done right by a professional, it's something you're doing for and with somebody, not to them. And so that really can affect both your mindset about how you feel about what you're doing and then also the outcome and what you're doing in the conversation because you're doing it with them and you want to help them. Like you said, problem solver. I think the second thing, and this is my default number one go-to advice when anyone says, well, how do I close more deals? And they want an answer right now. I say, when in doubt, do the opposite of what you think a salesperson does. Just do the opposite, <laughs> right? Say and do the opposite. Now that doesn't mean being passive and an order taker. It means don't do the things that people don't like about salespeople. And I promise you will probably win uh, right away much more. Um, so we'll leave it at that. And then for people who want to follow up, want to get the book, I, um, you can buy them directly from me. I'll sign it and send it to you. I have, like I said, podcasts, uh, and other exciting things going on, but it's really simple. Jasoncutter.com. That's J A S O N C U T T E R. Just like it sounds jasoncutter.com, which is the hub for everything that I have available. All right. Terrific. Thanks so much, Jason. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thank you both. That's all the time we have for today. For our listeners, be sure to subscribe to Asher Strategies Radio on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast venue. You can also ask Alexa or Siri to 
play Asher Strategies Radio. From now until we meet again, Sean Asher reminds us to please, please get out there and sell something. Over 200 correlation studies show that natural aptitude is the most significant factor in predicting sales success. Asher's Advanced Personality Questionnaire, the APQ, consistently identifies peak performers in outside sales, inside sales, sales management, customer support, and 17 other business positions. Go to asherstrategies.com today or call 866-833-9941. That's Asher Strategies at 866-833-9941.